Welcome back to the Burning Archive and this is part two of my episode or the second episode perhaps on Russia in the 19th century. Last, uh, In the last episode I provided a bit of a narrative overview of Russia in the 19th century as well as foreshadowing the importance of both uh, Tolstoy's novel War and Peace and uh, the events of Russia in 1812 where Napoleon was defeated and ultimately Russia marched all the way to Paris in 1814 to liberate Europe and how uh, that story uh, is told wonderfully in Tolstoy but perhaps with more historical accuracy by the wonderful historian Dominique Levin in his book Russia Against Napoleon, which was published in 2009 and is subtitled uh, Russia Against Napoleon, The Battle for Europe, 1807-1814. And uh, the narrative account perhaps took a little bit uh, longer because wow there are just so many wonderful stories in 19th century uh, Russia I just could not help myself so I hope you don't mind so I've decided to break this episode into two parts and now I'm going to start to talk about the three great sort of dynamic conflicts that uh, helped to shape history in Russia and the character of Russia so that we can understand it better than uh, if we just rely on mainstream media accounts or the black legend of Russian history. And then I want to talk a little bit about the, I guess, the alternative history of uh, the war of 1812 or 1807 to 1814 when Russia liberated Europe and perhaps its abiding significance to us today. So there are three great conflicts that I will talk about. There's a cultural conflict, if you like, between people who favour Western culture, Western European culture, and those who prefer, who were known as the Slavophiles, who preferred Orthodox Russian uh, traditional uh, culture, including even... Yeah, the sort of the Byzantine legacy almost of Russian culture and history, and then the there's a big social conflict, uh, which is fundamental to understanding uh, Russia, which is the uh, uh, growing tensions, I guess, between. Uh, on the one side, the intelligentsia and the urban um, commerce. And on the other side, the vast majority of uh, Russia, which uh, the peasants uh, their in- and their institutional relationships with the landlords uh, and the, their, 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 the communes. Uh, when in some ways this is almost a conflict between collectivism and individualism. 
And then finally, I'll talk about a political uh, conflict or or, or um, driver of change um, or, or a, a political difference that generates uh, many responses, and that is the difference between the political entity of a nation and the political entity of an empire and this is so fundamental to to 19th century Russia let's get into those things now so let's begin with the cultural conflict which I can describe broadly as between I guess the Slavophiles as in those who love Slavic uh, Eastern European traditions Russian Eastern European traditions and the Westerners. Now, Russia is an Orthodox, as in Christian Orthodox country, uh, with its own distinctive cultural and religious history. Distinct from the familiar story of the Western Church of Rome, uh, it derives its legacy from Constantinople. Uh, the Byzantine, the original uh, uh, Christian church based around uh, the Eastern Mediterranean. But Russia is not exclusively a Orthodox country. It certainly has a legacy of the Byzantine Empire, of Orthodox Christianity, but it has also always been a multi-ethnic and multi-faith empire. It has a legacy of the, the Mongol horde, uh, a quite deep legacy in its political institutions and its, uh, I guess, traditions of Eurasianism, uh, of, uh, of the, uh, what the historian Mary Favreau describes as the Mongol exchange. And it also has profound legacies from Tatar, Turkic, uh, various Finnic and uh, sort of Siberian, Central Asian uh, ethnic groups. There was also a Russian Enlightenment and a growing awareness, especially after Peter the Great, that uh, Russia stood as uh, as part of a globally dominant Europe in the 19th century. And these Western influences were, to some degree, more uh, decisively integrated into Russian culture after Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, who I'll talk about more in the next episode. But uh, the integration of these different influences into a national identity, uh, not just a Muscovite political tr tradition or a Im imperial political tradition, but into a national identity, became a more acute problem in the first half of the 19th century. Uh, this was partly because Russia, the empire, had liberated Europe from uh, from the sort of French revolutionary national tradition. And it was also because of the growth of many forms of nationalism 
and nation state. And what's more, it also occurred in the context of uh, the, the global 19th century where Europe had its, uh, uh, it, it, the, the European powers exercise dominion over the earth. Uh, you could call it colonialism, but there was that, it was really from the late, late uh, 18th, early 19th century that there is a decisive shift in the fates of, of Europe versus the rest of the world. And so Europe seemed to be the future. Europe seemed to be the path of prosperity, uh, cultural rationalism and and um, success, success in the world. Uh, it appeared and was increasingly articulated so by European powers as the continent uh, that expressed a civilizing mission around the world. So within Russia, within this uh, context, this posed a dilemma with its, uh, its different cultural and political traditions. And a huge debate emerged, particularly in the uh, 1820s and 1830s, but that resonated really throughout the, uh, throughout the 19th century between what were called the Slavophiles and the Westerners. The Westerners argued that Russia had suffered from cutting itself off from the Roman Catholic Church and so from the success of the unique rational values and institutions of the West. Among the Westerners were uh, a man called Chadiev, Palinsky, Herzen and Bakunin. Uh, some people might have heard of Bakunin, Prince Bakunin, who was a exiled uh, anarchist um, uh, in the mid 19th century. Blinsky was a great literary critic, uh, and Herzen was a sort of emigre writer, uh, I guess more liberal, moderate than Bakunin, but still uh, something of a political dissident. And Chadev, Chadev was the author of a letter about Russia that was, I guess, the uh, defining tract of the Westerners in the 19th century. Piet Yekolovich Ichadev, uh, lived between 1794 and 1856, and he wrote uh, eight lettres philosophiques between 1828 and 1831, which became enormously controversial within Russia and uh, the, in the uh, Cambridge History of Russia. It says here that in the first letter, Chiyadjev famously described Russians as rootless orphans with one foot in the air, without a real uh, proper culture due to the Kievan barbarism, Tatar cruelty and Muscovite severity. He criticised the Orthodox Church for supporting serfdom and critically argued that Russia had cut itself off from the Roman 
Catholic Church, which in his opinion had constructed in the West a genuine multinational community based on a deeply traditional but also rational value system. It's really not so different from uh, many of the arguments that one hears today about Russia not really being part of the West because it's not really part of the Western European traditions. Uh, Chadiev's letter, just out of curiosity, created an enormous, an enormous uh, controversy and um, in some ways, and if you remember from the narrative history, this is in the era of Nicholas I in the 1820s and 1830s in a, in a situation of, I guess, conservative censorship. And uh, Chadiev was apparently pronounced insane, placed under house arrest. Uh, the man who failed to censor his article was sacked. And uh, the journal in which it was published was shut down and its editor was exiled you could say Jadiev was cancelled but his um his argument uh reflected the views of many i guess in the uh, liberal european european oriented uh russian uh elite who saw the fate of the country as embracing western europe rather than its its um, oriental traditions, its Eurasian traditions. However, there was another, the other side of the argument was that of the Slavophiles. And uh, in the Cambridge history, which I'm relying on to summarise this rather complicated debate, it says that the Slavophiles argued that Western rationalism had uh, fostered selfish individualism the desire for conquest, a society divided into political factions, classes at war with one another, and revolutionary destruction. Meanwhile, Russian life had been guided by the Eastern Church's harmonious outlook, by a search for inner rectitude, by a sense of natural proportion, dignity, and humility testifying to spiritual balance and to depth and integrity of moral conscience. The Slavophiles uh, included a whole bunch of people like Komiakov, Kirievsky, Aksakov, uh, and later figures like Leontiev and, of course, uh, the later Dostoevsky. And the influence of this culture can be read in Tolstoy's War and Peace, in the embracing of the traditions of Russian peasant culture uh, uh, against the decadent national, all the decadent uh, imperial traditions of the uh, Russian French-influenced elite, it can even uh, still be heard, I guess, in some of Vladimir Putin's recent speeches about the nature of Russian culture and civilization, where Putin evokes values of mercy and compassion as opposed to Western liberal decadence or even Satanism. And it can be seen, in, in again, in Tolstoy's um, presenting of the character of Pierre Bezukhov, 
who moves from being uh, associated with degenerate French aristocratic Masonic life, like he joined the Freemasons, to finally connecting through both his participation in the war and his experience of the ordinary life of the Russian people uh, with the Russian land. And in a way, I guess, it is that spiritual reserve that Tolstoy refers to as being the ultimate uh, strength that Russia used to defeat Napoleon. So the argument uh, between the Slavophiles and uh, the Westerners continued throughout the 19th century and, of course, I guess it's most brilliantly dramatised, I guess, in, in Dostoevsky's novels. Uh, and it has, still has echoes today, I guess, in that um, or in later articulations by Russians of of whether they're part of Europe, whether they're part of Eurasia, uh, whether they uh, have a Eurasian identity as opposed to a European identity. And it seems today, at least decisively, uh, the the both, I guess, the scholarship uh, increasingly <laughs> shows the deep and complex traditions of that Eurasian identity no longer um, seen as uh, a, a poor cousin to European prosperity and success and the choice, I guess, more and more Russians are taking to embrace that uh, more complex uh that more complex identity that embraces many of the cultures that have formed them over the years. But anyhow, it was uh, a huge debate at the heart of Russian culture in the 19th century. And it also related to one of the other big conflicts I'm going to talk about, a big social conflict in a way, uh, that uh, related to the conflict between the intelligentsia and, I guess, commercial classes and the peasants and uh, the institutions of communal and collective life within uh, Russian agricultural society. As I think I mentioned in relationship to Chadyev, one of the key complaints against the, um, the Russian culture was its, in the Russian uh, Orthodox Church was its uh, complicity with serfdom. So serfdom was a fundamental fact of life in 19th century Russia. Most of the population of Russia in the 19th century were agricultural labourers laborers and peasants. And until 1860 or thereabouts they were all serfs what is a serf so a serf was um, a peasant an agricultural laborer who owed a legal duty uh, to service either the russian state or russian landowners private russian landowners you know the aristocrats who owned the vast estates on which they worked. Uh, it was a form of uh, indentured labour. It was potentially, you could even say, a form of slavery, although that 
concept is perhaps a little bit uh, loaded because there were some more complexities. It came to Russia in uh, in uh, the late 16th century, either in the time of Ivan the Terrible or in the uh, time of Boris Godunov, who uh, we'll get to in some later episodes, uh, as a way to, I guess, control uh, internal migration within Russia of uh, peasant labourers to keep them uh, fixed to the estate so that they just did not uh, head off and move to new areas. Uh, and peasants were owned, I guess, by, or serfs were owned uh, either by the state or by the uh, the private landowners, uh, noble private landowners. And uh, peasants also had a, within their villages an uh, institution called the commune, uh, which was a kind of collective form of uh, decision-making uh, within their uh, local lives um, that was adapted and uh, changed over time and became quite important uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And the labour of, uh, I don't know, have the actual percentages, but you know, in most most societies in the world in the 19th century, 90% plus maybe, uh, or approximately 80 to 90% of uh, the population was involved in agricultural labour in some form or another. But the um, special legal nature of the relationship between uh, noble and peasant um, uh, was at the heart, I guess, of some of the critics of uh, Russian culture, of the westernisers. And there were certainly many abuses of the serfs, some of which included abuses by our good friend Lev Tolstoy, who, you know, occasionally um, beat his uh serfs and um, and live to regret it. But agricultural labour was not the only thing about Russian society in the 19th century. Russian, Russian society, as with uh, or, uh, well, the whole world really, the whole globalising world, but especially in uh, the industrial heartlands of Europe was rapidly urbanising, rapidly industrialising and rapidly commercialising. And although these trends, I guess, were uh, came a little bit later in Russia than in um, Britain, the, 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 the fundamental pattern of growing uh, urban life, commercial life, uh, and industrial life was very much a key factor. And indeed, if you like, uh, the famous literary figure of Pushkin is an example of this commercial life, something like uh, he is one of the uh, first commercially successful, commercially viable writers in Russian history, just in the same way, I guess, as Dickens is a profoundly commercially successful writer in 19th century um, Britain. And 
you know, these cities were not always great places to live in. There was a lot of urban poverty, there was a lot of squalor, there was a lot of ruthless commercial behaviour as well as entrepreneurial commercial behaviour. And again, the novels of Dostoevsky are brilliant portrayals of the characters and the tragedies and the, um, the, the tensions and the dynamics of that changing society. But what was also emerging, along with that growing commercial market for literature and growing education and literacy, was the emergence of the intelligentsia. Uh, people like Pushkin, but many others as well, who uh, had a highly conflicted relationship with often repressive uh, authority. So there was a vast difference, if you like, between the lived experience of the peasant commune and the lived experience of the intellectual commercial classes, let alone the, the, the uh, aristocrats, the landowning aristocrats. And this uh, social tension, if you like, underlay many of the uh, debates and conflicts between people of radical, liberal, nationalist or conservative views, uh, or those who had a sympathetic attitude to the Russian Orthodox traditions versus the, the, uh, uh, the Westerners, the people who wanted Russia to become more like Europe, Western Europe. Uh, so, and it's impossible to understand Tolstoy or 19th century culture uh, without understanding that sort of tension, uh, but also the incredible dynamism and fertility of this, these new social and economic arrangements. Yes, serfdom survives until 1861. Uh, slavery su survives in the United States for uh, a few years beyond that. Uh, and there's also uh, serfdom uh, traditions of uh, difficult relationships with peasants in all, all, all societies around the world. But the new urban uh, commercial educated combination of Western European Orthodox Eurasian cultures really does generate this great golden age of uh, Russian culture and Russian literature especially uh, Gogol, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky and perhaps more than anything it's the world of Dostoevsky that portrays the conflict between I guess the intellectuals and the, the com commercial people, the declassé aristocrats and the, uh, the peasants um, most richly and most complexly in novels like The Possessed, which uh, follows an account of, uh, follows a cell of radical revolutionary people or Brothers Karamazov itself, where uh, you see the whole, whole, whole set of conflicts between the Orthodox faith, the, uh, the urban intellectuals, the um, provincial commercial people, the, 
uh, D-class A uh, aristocrats and so on. And that takes us then to our third great uh, conflict that underlay the uh, character of 19th century Russian history. And it is a conflict or a tension, I guess, a, a conflict or a tension that is fundamental to understanding both Tolstoy's War and Peace as well as the real story of 1812 uh, to 1814, Russia's War Against Napoleon. Because the state that defeated Napoleon, Russia, uh, and then liberated Europe in uh, 1814, was an empire, not a nation. Tolstoy's story, I guess, is, uh, in a way, is often told as a story of a re- or an awakening of a sense of national spirit and national culture within Russia itself. But it uh, was not a nation that defeated Napoleon. It was an empire. And and the 19th century was in many ways uh, also the century of the emergence and the rebellion of nations within empires. It was a long rolling crisis that really ultimately only found its uh, denouement its ultimate conclusion in the uh, the 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 World War of uh, World War One, the Great War of between nineteen fourteen and nineteen eighteen, which saw the uh, collapse and death of the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and the weakening of uh, multiple other European empires, not quite the death of the British Empire yet, but certainly also uh, signs of its demise. And throughout the 19th century, there is this tension in Russia, but also in uh, or within the Russian Empire, uh, this tension between empires and nations. Uh, it was by no means unique to Russia. Uh, uh, let's think, after all, the Great Indian Mutiny, as it's known in Britain, or the First War of Independence, as it's known in India, which occurs in 1815, 1857, is part of uh, the revolt of many uh, Indians against British imperial rule, which had really only uh, uh, secured itself decisively in the sort of latter half of the uh, 18th century. So it was really still, if you like, only uh, uh, roughly 100 years old. And there were similar uh, outbreaks uh, of both a growing sense of national identity uh, within empires as well as revolts against that. Let's even just think of Australia itself. Uh, 
over the course of the 19th century, Australia become gradually evolves from a a uh, you know uh, a uh, outpost for the transportation of convicts uh, and a secure sea base for the British in the South Pacific to become uh, in 1901 its own nation and um, there were many nationalist writers in the late 19th century in Russia in Australia but within Europe uh, broadly or within Eurasia similarly there is a huge range of uh, conflicts around nationalism in the 19th century Poland uh, which is extinguished as a state in the late 18th century in the partition of Poland under uh, Catherine the Great, who we'll talk about next week or next in the next episode. There is a outgrowth of Polish nationalism throughout the night uh, throughout the 19th century, including significant revolts. Um, against uh, so through the 19th century Poland is a province of of Russia and part of the conflict between uh, Napoleon and Alexander the first is over the in fact the control of Poland and uh, Ukraine similarly to just echo echo um, our uh, more recent histories, uh, Ukraine is also part of this uh, tradition of the growth of nationalism in the 19th century. But similarly, nationalism is not really a whole population phenomenon uh, in the 19th century. Uh, I think as Dominique Levin has said, most uh, people, uh, all those peasants, um, uh, agricultural labourers uh, did not really identify with a nation. They identified themselves as, uh, I think he says, when people are asked, you know, who are they? They say they are from around here or that they are orthodox. Uh, they related to a faith and to a local area rather than a national political uh, entity. Nationalism, however, was a much stronger uh, phenomenon amongst the intelligentsia who emerge, uh, as we were describing before, through the 19th century. Uh, and it's not only in the European states uh, that this nationalism emerges. It emerges in China, it emerges in Japan, it emerges in, in uh, some of the constituent parts of Russia's great empire, like in the Caucasus. Uh, there is a great famous uh, set of stories around um, uh, by Tolstoy, there's a great story by Tolstoy, the prisoner of the Caucasus, that describes the Islamic, I guess, Islamic nationalism and Islamic military resistance to the imperial centre in the 19th century. So there are many nations within um, within this empire, but they, the, the growth of nationalism also presents a major threat 
to the stability of the imperial power. And again, uh, you know, let's emphasize not only in in Russia, also in Britain, the Indian Mutiny of 1857, and Queen Victoria was known as the Empress of India. So yes, that's the great uh, tension between empire and nation within uh, Russian history in the 19th uh, century. And to some degree, you could almost see that as also connected to the Western Slavophile debate as well. Uh, there's an element of that um, through the 19th century Western Europe in particular, even though those countries are running vast empires, have a growing sense of, uh, I guess, liberal nationalism about their domestic political arrangements. And that becomes something of a model that other states follow and that gets imposed and used by other states as well. So... The debate around empire and nation is uh, fundamental to understanding 19th century Russian history. And that, in a way, brings us back to war and peace. To war and peace and to Dominic Levin's true history of Russia's liberation of Europe uh, between 1812 and 1814. The great, in a way, defining event of Russia's 19th century how uh, Russia, or how the defeat of Napoleon saved Russia from extinction in 1812, and extinction is not an exaggeration after all, uh, Napoleon did occupy Moscow. Again, uh, this event is one of the best known in history. Napoleon comes to power in the ashes of the French Revolution in the late 1890s. And he applies his military genius and his flair for rational, enlightened government to establish a European empire, a revolutionary European empire that included Spain, Italy, uh, the lowlands of like the Netherlands and stuff, and uh, Germany, and I think he might have even occupied Poland. In 1807, he concludes a peace agreement with uh, the Russian Tsar, Tsar Alexander I, and uh, its rather francophone court on a boat at Tilsit in, uh, in that year, on, on the river Nima, I think, or Neiman. Then Napoleon, determined to defeat Britain decides to knock out Russia first. He invades in 1812. Russia avoids direct combat and makes constant strategic withdrawals. A great battle occurs at Borodino on the plains about 120 kilometers outside of Moscow. But despite the... and that battle, I believe, was the largest battle uh, in the history of war until uh, the First World War. So a monumental battle indeed, and of course that battle uh, is featured in, in very much so in uh, Tolstoy's War and Peace. Then Napoleon marches um, after coming to a bit of a stalemate in that battle. Napoleon marches on to Moscow. Russia evacuates the city 
Napoleon occupies it and stays there for weeks with his Grande Armée, expecting the Russians to sue for peace. The weather starts to turn cold and supplies become short. Napoleon begins to withdraw, but the Russians chase him. Snow sets in and Napoleon's army is destroyed by partisan attacks, hunger, disease and general winter. The cold and the snow and the ice of the Russian winter. Now, in most Western European and and this, I guess, is the story told in Tolstoy. It's the story told in various films, adaptations of War and Peace. Uh, it's it's you know um, the the common myth, let's say, of of uh, eighteen the War of eighteen twelve, or the the defeat of Napoleon, uh, and in most. Western European and American accounts, it is Napoleon's hubris and the Russian weather that defeats the invasion. The Russian leadership, army, government and people are passive bystanders and lucky beneficiaries of their uninhabitable, cursed and snowbound country. Uh, These accounts generally then skip forward a couple of years to Wellington, General Wellington, and uh, Britain's defeat of Napoleon at Waterloo. And in Tolstoy's account, it is ultimately the spirit of the Russian people, its capacity for mercy, compassion, and self-sacrifice that enables Russia to endure this torment. He too skips over the next steps of the war, the of Alexander Tsar Alexander's successful march of the Russian army across Europe to Paris to liberate Europe from Napoleon, and looks instead to ahead instead to the eighteen twenty five Decembrist revolt against the Tsar and the tragic failure of liberal aristocrats like Volkonsky, who I think I spoke about briefly in the previous episode. Uh, and if, if you go to the Hermitage Museum in uh, St. Petersburg, you'll see there's a whole room uh, within the Hermitage Museum dedicated to the uh, portraits of the various generals and military officials uh, and uh, political leaders who who were crucial to uh, the great sacrifice of 1812. Uh, It's it's part of, I guess, the national mythology of uh, Russia. And I guess Napoleon's defeat was crucial to national mythologies of Britain and national mythologies of Germany and other countries as well. So it's perhaps not surprising that the story of Russia's defeat of uh, Napoleon uh, in 1812 to 1814 gets distorted. Dominique Levin, uh, the historian of largely imperial Russia, spent decades in frustration about how this story was told wrongly by all sides. And you can... um, 
There's quite a few videos on YouTube of Dominique Lieben talking about his book and he's very much a, a traditional British academic, I guess, um, but an incredibly uh, insightful, educated and wise man and and he, he if I will very quickly retell his version of the story here, but you can certainly check that out yourself. So it's in his book, Russia Against Napoleon, uh, that he retells the story uh, of how Russia won the war, which he felt, in the end, are far more interesting questions than how the snow defeated Napoleon. Uh, nationalist perspectives, both in Russian and European traditions really do not grasp this question and tend to understate the Russian achievement, even among Russians. And there's a reason for that, which is, again, national myths don't work when the state that liberated Europe from Napoleon was an empire, not a nation. As... Lieben says, the Russia which defeated Napoleon was an aristocratic, dynastic and multi-ethnic empire. And if I just briefly read from uh, Dominique Lieben's Russian against Napoleon, he says, key aim of this book is to get beyond the Russian myths to the realities of the Russian war effort in 1812 to 1814. I am above all interested in establishing how and why Russia overcame the enormous challenge presented by Napoleon in these years. And there are also other reasons for questioning aspects of Russian mythology about the Napoleonic era. One reason is a reflection on empires and nations. And here we come back to our, our, our uh, key point that the Russian state that defeated Napoleon was an empire, not a nation. Both generally and in the Russian case, it seems to me, Levin goes on after my brief uh, interpolation, it seems to me a mistake to see everything in the Europe in, in the imperial tradition as harmful and the nation as the inevitable embodiment of virtue. This is in no sense a justification for neo-empire in today's world. But empire in its day, unlike very many nations, was often relatively tolerant, pluralist, and even occasionally benevolent in its attitude towards the many communities who sheltered under its protection. So there is this this um, this sort of embarrassment at the heart of the success of 1812, that it is uh, in the century going forward from 1812 on to the Great War, it is the century of the rise of the nation and the ultimate defeat of European empires in 1914. So it's paradoxical to look back and to think that it was actually the strengths and the virtues of an empire rather than a nation that secured peace in Europe. So why did Russia win in the war? Uh, 
you know, um, Levin's book is absolutely wonderful and it goes into all sorts of fascinating details about logistics and the, uh, the, the industrial system for producing armaments in Russia and identifies one of the great heroes of the war in the 19th century being the horse and uh, the ability to get horses to... Um, as a means of transport as well as, a, you know, cavalry charges into uh, the, the, um, the, the theatre of operations that the war was fundamental. But ultimately, uh, Levin argues that Russia had always planned for a long war in which defence against an invasion would be required but an, an advance would ultimately come. Fundamentally, the Russians also outthought their enemy. He says, Alexander well understood the strengths and weaknesses of his enemy and used this insight to full effect. They used the concept of deep retreat. The Russian army also fought with great skill and learned from its war, so did it fought better in 1813-14 than in 1812, and this was built on loyalty to one's regiments and comrades. Uh, an aristocratic army in its uh, many of its official in it, in its officers, but also an army with deep uh, loyalties to regiment and comrades, again something that it's evident when one travels to the Hermitage in St. Petersburg and looks at that extraordinary room about the 1812 war. Levin also argues it was in fact after the defeat of the European Ancien Regime in revolutionary France, it was actually the European old regime and an army built on that regime that defeated Napoleon, not the New World. It was a victory of conservative imperial authority over revolutionary liberal nationalism. And finally, he also emphasises Tsar Alexander's the first's, uh, conviction that Russian security lay in the European balance of power. And again, if I quote from uh, Lieben's book, he says that in 1813, Alexander had to take the great risk of invading Central Europe with his exhausted and weakened army to mobilise his potential allies, at times almost needing to grab them by the scruff of the neck in order to get them to serve their own and Europe's interests. The courage, skill and intelligence he showed in first creating the Allied coalition and then leading it to Paris was remarkable. So at the heart of the story is also uh, the story of uh, extraordinary, perhaps underrated in non-Russian history figure Tsar Alexander the first. So they are the three big themes of cultural conflict, Slavophiles versus Westerners, 
of social conflict between, I guess, uh, emerging traditions of liberal individualism and and uh, grounded traditions of both religious and peasant collectivism and the paradoxes and the tensions in the 19th century especially between nations and empires and how they come together in both the remarkable history and the remarkable myth-making around events of uh, 1812 to 1814. Um, But it also brings us back to our fundamental purpose in this series of discussions of Russian history and how Russian history is so much more complicated than the black legend of uh, Russian history that that Mark B. Smith in his book Russia, the Russian Anxiety, described and that I, I described back in podcast number 65, The Black Legend of Russian History. So Mark B. Spiff himself in Russia Anxiety says that echoes, I guess, the thought of Alexander I that Russian and European security are inextricably uh, intertwined even if Russia is has both a European and a Eurasian cultural and political traditions. By 1814, Mark B. Smith writes... The Russian Imperial Army had chased the French all the way back to Paris. Waterloo was just the coup de grace. Russia was the indispensable nation. Of course, if I just add in there, that is a reference to Madeleine Albright's uh, infamous remark that America was the indispensable nation. Russia was the indispensable nation. Alexander I had a seat close to the middle of the top table at the post-war Congress of Vienna in 1815. The message was clear. Europe is at its safest when Russia is at its heart. Perhaps uh, Europe, the European leaders today should read Dominique Levin and Mark B. Smith, and reflect upon the events of Napoleon's attempted conquest of Russia. It shows the complex relationship between empire and nation revealed in the story of how Russia liberated Europe from Napoleon, of how the Russian Empire, strengthened by the Russian nation, and many of the other nations who nestled within the Russian Empire, liberated the nations of Europe from Napoleon's revolutionary empire of the French nation. Russia secured peace in Germany and in Poland, but the world was changing with the Industrial Revolution. That revolution and Napoleon's defeat supercharged the British Empire and its rivalry with the indispensable country of Europe, Russia. Later in the century came German unification. Domestically, Levin writes, 
victory legitimised and consolidated the existing regime, which in Russia was rooted in autocracy and serfdom. The sense that Russia was victorious, secure and secure removed an incentive for radical domestic reform. The conservative regime of Nicholas I, who ruled from 1825 until 1855, was partly rooted in an assumption of Russian power and security. There is perhaps a parallel here with America since 1989. So the 19th century war and peace, uh, Tolstoy, Dominique Levin, the extraordinary cultural um, uh, treasures of uh, Russia in the 19th century in music, in literature, in art, in philosophy, in science, uh, in political thought. All these things have much to uh, commend themselves for study uh, and both in order to better understand the reality of Russian history and how it is different from the black legend of Russian history but also indeed to reflect upon our own times and the potential catastrophes for a indispensable nation when it assumes too much about its, its international environment and it fails to reform its domestic uh, social situation. And also, I guess, it teaches us something uh, about the rich and complex and difficult uh, circumstances that underpin the conflict in Ukraine today. So thanks for joining me for this episode on uh, 19th century Russian history. Next episode, we're looking back from the 19th century into the 18th century and two towering figures of Russian history, Peter the Great and Catherine the Great. So until then, do uh, like, share, subscribe uh, to the podcast and remember what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee. Bye now. <laughs>